I'm Richard Sherman, and you're listening to my Audible original, The League. Equal parts history, social commentary, and entertainment. We'll focus on some of football's most unlikely, inspiring, and unbelievable stories. Be sure to check out this title and other great storytelling at audible.com. Imagine if six of the best players in the NFL today teamed up this past offseason to film a Hollywood blockbuster. In a world coming soon to a theater near you. Well, the truth is, it once happened. When in 1972, Hollywood produced the Black Six. Six times rougher than Jazz, six times tougher than Superfly. The Black Six was a film that starred six of the most accomplished players in the NFL at the time. All-Pro defensive end of the Minnesota Vikings, Carl Eller. 1971's Rookie of the Year for the Pittsburgh Steelers, Mean Joe Green. All-Pro running back of the Miami Dolphins, Mercury Morris. The greatest cornerback of his generation of the Detroit Lions, Lim Barney. All-Pro linebacker for the Kansas City Chiefs, Willie Lanier. And All-Pro wide receiver for the San Francisco 49ers, Gene Washington. And it was a film that marked the first time Hollywood had ever invested in a movie built entirely around a cast of NFL superstars. Watch them put their skin on the line. And it would also be the last. This is The League. Audible Originals presents a Joy Road Entertainment production. I'm your host, Richard Sherman. The Black Six was a film conceived by its director, Matt Simber, who began his career directing plays in New York City. Well, I've been in the business since I was 14. I did my first play, I was about 21 years old, and I did some very good off-Broadway plays, and so I had been very prepared, but I had never made a feature film. But when I came out west, this Hollywood agent said, hey, are you interested in doing a film? I said, yes, I've been talking about doing an action picture with some of the great football players. I was always a great fan of football and betting on football, which I did all my life, but I loved the game. By the early 1970s, great NFL football players were no stranger to Hollywood. Emboldened by legendary running back Jim Brown's departure from the league for a career in Tinseltown, dozens of players would wade into the Hollywood waters, including Fred Williamson, Alex Karras, and Rosie Greer. Even Roman Gabriel, who won the most valuable player in 1969 for the Los Angeles Rams, would try his hand alongside John Wayne, portraying the Duke's adopted Native American son in the film, The Undefeated. For the record, Gabriel was Filipino. But what made The Black Six so unique was that the film was the result of a perfect storm in both Hollywood and black culture that made it possible. Coming out of the 1960s, black pride, black power, 
and the rise of black cinema were transforming American culture. It was a social movement that has spawned the black exploitation genre with films like Shaft and Superfly. With that in mind, we spoke to the professor of critical studies at USC School of Cinematic Arts, Todd Boyd, aka the notorious PhD. You had this era in which Hollywood had never really paid any attention to black audiences, was now all of a sudden making these kind of low budget films aimed at urban audiences that people embraced. The movies were extremely successful. Sweetback spent four weeks at the top of the box office in 1971. Superfly knocked The Godfather out of the top spot at the box office in 1972. The idea being that many of these movies would be made by, say, white filmmakers, white writers, white producers, but starring all black cast. There are exceptions to this. Shaft and Sweetback and Superfly, these are black films made by black creatives. But as you get deeper and deeper into the era, Hollywood saw a way to make a quick buck. So the name black exploitation came to kind of define that era. And the Black Six would be one of the films of many released during this time. Add some trailblazing hip-hop icon, de facto leader of the iconic Wu-Tang Clan, writer, producer, and director, RZA. So, you know, you think about the black exploitation genre, which did a lot for Hollywood. It did a lot for not just through the films, but even through the music of it. You think about the composers that came out of that, like Isaac Hayes, Willie Hutch, Roy Ayers. You know, it also laid a foundation for hip hop because we sampled, they say black exploitation. The funny thing about it for me is that the word exploitation, right? And, and a lot of us never understood what it meant, right? Because for us who are just watching it, we're just enjoying to see ourselves portrayed as different characters, heroes, villains. But when you look up the word exploitation, it means to benefit on something more than anybody else, right? So when we say black exploitation, we're just saying that the business was exploiting the trends and exploiting the culture and benefiting from it and finding a way to make low-cost films and turn a big profit. Now, I could argue that that's any film. (laughs) At the same time, another popular genre coming out of Hollywood was the biker film. Though the Black Six may have been an attempt to mash up the two popular genres, director Matt Simber's inspiration for the Black Six came from somewhere else. When I was in prep school, I was a big fan of Alfred Tennyson and the Charge of the Light Brigade. And I said, oh my God, this is it. We need six guys because the Light Brigade was 600 guys. And I said, I want to make them the greatest heroes because that's what they are. And that's how they're going to come out in this film. So we started putting it together. Simber would put the film together by choosing from the best players of the league at the time who also had well-known personalities, but little acting experience. Shares Carl Eller, who portrayed the mighty junior bro Williams, well, it's a great cast. First of all, all these guys are all pro, or certainly a number of them became Hall of Famous. So they were really stars in the league. 
I was actually involved in acting at that time, and I had the small bit roles, but I really wanted to go more into acting. But this was one of the first opportunities I had. It was a big break. Adds Mercury Morris, who was cast as the gang's fast-talking bookie, Garrett. My acting experience was limited. I was picked because of the personality that I had or that had been given to me in terms of uh, who I was as a football player. And each and every guy had their own 1970s persona. In a case of going against type, Willie Lanier would portray Tommy Bunker, the group's more sensitive member. I did not have any acting experience. What that word means is acting experience. You can only have the first, the first time first. My personality, in its own way, sometimes for me, it didn't really fit playing football because I did not have a natural instinct or desire to hurt anybody. The player given that role certainly had that reputation. In fact, so tenacious was his play that he was given the nickname Mean Joe Green, even though his name was Charles Edward. While Lim Barney would be cast as Frenchie Lebois, the group's most lethal martial artist, the cornerback from Detroit had neither acting nor riding experience. However, he could boast that having been one of Marvin Gaye's backup singers on one of Motown's most iconic hits, What's Going On? As for what was going on with the Black Six, the same question could have been asked of the players when they received the first screenplay for the film. The screenwriter was totally pissed at me because, you know, he said, Matt, there's no screenplay here. I said, don't worry about it. They'll give us the screenplay, but I'm going to have to get them to talk in their own words. Joe Green is not going to be able to read a script and give you a reading on that script that really means anything. Just tell him what's happening in the scene and let him take it. I said, let all of them. We knew nothing about the film we started out really not knowing anything uh, about what we were doing. We were just listening to what Simber had to say about the technical aspect of shooting a movie and having the scenes and all that stuff. Screenplay notwithstanding, the plot of The Black Six would follow a group of black bikers led by Gene Washington's character, who, having just returned from Vietnam, go on a trip into the Deep South to find out who murdered Washington's brother? What can you tell me about Eddie? Well, I saw him the day before with the girl he was going with. The white girl? Jenny King. Who killed him? Filming would commence in the summer of 1972, but it would not be in Hollywood. Well, I didn't think it would be Hollywood because I didn't know what that meant, Hollywood. It wasn't really Hollywood. It was Bakersfield. We had this idea that we were going to be Hollywood and chicks and parties and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it was actually like we were working at a motel, uh, getting ready to do this film with people who were real bikers. And they weren't just real bikers. They were actually members of the outlaw biker gang, the Hells Angels, who were hired as on-set security and also worked in the film. It seems like everywhere I'm at, somebody's always asking me to go. Look, we're not asking you, we're telling you. Aware of the potential tensions between the two groups, director Matt Simber took precaution. In the beginning, they told me that the black guys and 
They're Hell's Angels. They're not going to get along. So you put them in separate hotels, which I did. But as it turned out, something even more curious occurred while on set. The two groups got along. We were a different kind of black person. They knew they were going to be in this movie, but they also knew that they had people who had a source of significance. We were already stars in another genre. We weren't considered the colored guys. We had our own source of significance that they respected. And that was the difference. Plus, we were perfectly willing to bond with these guys and they with us for some reason. I guess because it's a movie. But according to Simber, the real reason for the good feelings between the players and the bikers was something else. I don't know if I should say this, but the one thing that joined them all together, guess, pot. All they had to hear was the other group had pot, and they had pot. Boy, that was it. They, they could all smoke pot together, and that's what made them friends. And then before you know it, they were hanging around with them, asking them questions about the NFL. When, why did they do this with this play? Another difficulty production of the Black Six would encounter was that acting limitations aside, five of the six players had also never been on a motorcycle before. I had a motorcycle. As a matter of fact, I had my bike shipped out there. So I was kind of the only one who had any riding experience. Not to get ahead of myself, but Joe Green couldn't ride a motorcycle. Everybody was anxious to get to their motorcycle. They wanted to drive their motorcycle, you know. And Joe Green got to his motorcycle. <laughs> it looked like it was a toy. <laughs> you know, and he sat on it. He said, man, I don't think this should really be mine. I said, don't worry, Joe. We wanted it that way because we wanted to show how big you were and how strong you were. That shut him up. <laughs> he was fine, but he still looked like he was riding a toy. Joe Green couldn't ride a motorcycle. He couldn't ride a motorcycle for 10 yards without stalling it. One of the scenes where we were at the stadium and we all come riding out of the stadium and then as we're exiting, it starts out six guys, but then it's only five because Joe Green, he was back there trying to start the motorcycle. But again, it would be the camaraderie the players shared with the Hells Angels that got them by. So that part of it was so cool because we learned how to ride during the movie itself. We got some help from the bikers who helped us out. It was an unlikely kinship that Simber was proud of. They behaved themselves very well. They were very professional. And I said, now look guys, we're not gonna harm one person. Which wasn't exactly true, according to Mercury Morris. On the first night that we shot the scenes, it was at a football field, and that's when Gene's brother gets killed by the bikers. But that night in the first scene, this guy who was playing Gene Washington's brother, he wasn't really an athlete. And so Lem and I told this guy, these bikers, hey, we want you to put some pressure on this guy out there. He's up here pretending like he is an athlete. So put some pressure on. Run, Eddie, run! I'm not afraid of your brother. It's not only him. Get out with there's a chance. All of a sudden, all the bikers come out and then they start swarming around the football field. Then they ran the guy over with the bike because I said, I want to make sure that the guy has really got some moves to save his own ass. <laughs> But as filming of The Black Six continued, its director couldn't have been happier with what was captured. 
if you look all the way through, you realize they're not following a script. They're all throwing in. Once they started into the film, in the beginning, they were, where do I move? But once they saw how loose this was going to go, and when you watch the takes, you see them moving along and it's happening. You want this? Yeah, this bill right here. All right. That's ridiculous talking to a damn goat. You can get right. it right here. Put it right here. You can get it. All right. Let's see. Well, it. Don't let it throw you, boom, boom. Though it might not have been Easy Rider, the Black Six does have its moments, says Professor of Critical Studies Todd Boyd. As someone who grew up in the 70s as a uh, fan of both the NFL and black exploitation movies, the idea that there were six NFL players in a movie was something that was very appealing to me at that time in my life. I wouldn't necessarily say it was a good movie or there was a good movie in it. What I would say is it offered a experience to the people who went to see it. I'm a kid and I'm like a sports fanatic. So you got six football players in the movie. I'm, I'm good. Like I'm satisfied. Like, you know, it need not be, you know, uh, Truffaut or Scorsese. It need not be that. I'm fine. As far as acting chops went for members of the Black Six, though it may have been Gene Washington who had the pedigree, the movie would be stolen by the flamboyant halfback from Miami who was as good at running his mouth as he was at running the football. The guy I always knew was going to be the talker was Mercury Morris. He was a bullet. He had so much energy, and he was, I mean, he was alive there. He was very good. It's just out of towns that cause trouble. Yeah, brother, I know what you mean. Like, we have the same problem. You know, with them out of town hunkies, whiteies, or crackers, they come down our ghetto. You know, we're trying to live peaceful, you know. It was really a lot of fun. They had my character, and Bookie was always running his mouth, always challenging whatever was in front of him. And I don't know how he was fortunate enough to pick that character for me. And he said, I went by what I saw you do. As pleased as director Matt Simber was with the performance of his leads, Simber was equally happy with how their riding skills had developed. Even Joe Green's. On every tracking scene in the daytime, he would just take off. And like a half hour later, like we got nothing to do but wait until he learns how to ride this bike. So the night that we had the showdown, so all of a sudden we look and we see somebody going up a hill climb at night. And I'm going, who the hell is that up there in that hill? And so I look up there and it's Gene Washington up there at the top. Then he couldn't find a way to get down. And all of a sudden this other bike comes riding up there to get him. That was Joe Green. So he went from not knowing how to ride the bike 10 feet to doing hill climbs at night. As for the showdown in the film, that was another hill to climb. But this one, the Black Six wouldn't get over. When Simber gave us the script, I'm going, wait a minute. I went to Simber and Lem Barney and Carl Eller and I, as I told him, we didn't want to die at the end of the movie. That was where I first told him, first off, I'm not dying at the end of this movie. And so I said, I wanted to know how come the white guys start out killing people and we start out busting up furniture? It was something Carl Eller also picked up. 
We thought we were kind of the good guys, and it seemed like to me, like the Haldinians were villains, of course, but it seemed like they had a better role than we did, and I personally felt like we were supposed to be the heroes, not the Haldinians. So I was kind of cognizant of the idea that Simber was making it look like, hey, these guys are real tough, but they don't win. And that was the part that uh, eventually in the end, that's why the movie ended the way it did, because we refused to die. That's Willie Lanier. I think the best way to put it is that being diplomatic about it is that the producers produced the movie and had certain ideas to the beginning, the middle, and the end. And there was supposed to be some very wild biker confrontation that it might have appeared that we would not have survived the conquest. For director Matt Simber, the ending of the film is subject to interpretation. Well, that's to be discussed, okay? At the end, I had them throwing these explosives, and you had the fight, and you went into this kind of maze and into the picture. In my mind, they died, but I didn't want to show them dying. So I had the explosives working, and you see the picture, you tell yourself, did they die? Did they not die? Though it wouldn't persist as one of the greatest cinematic mysteries of the 70s, distributors decided to add a coda at the film's end credits, promising that the Black Six would return. As a fitting Hollywood ending to the production of the Black Six, the Hell's Angels would provide their own coda. The last day when they were let go, right after the party, they went back to their motel I shouldn't tell us. And one of them was so stoned, he took his motorcycle and he drove right through room to room to room, right through the walls with his motorcycle. Yeah. And of course, I just packed the company up quick and left. And as they say in Hollywood, that's a wrap. The Black Six would open in the summer of 1974. I don't think any of them had the faith to believe that I was making anything that would play in a theater. But when it opened in New York, it was unbelievable. It was raining, and I was in a hotel with one of the distributors who took me to a hotel. They brought me to New York for the opening, and he took me to his hotel overlooking Broadway, and I looked down at our theater, the, the uh, Lowe's, Lowe's Theater on Broadway, and there was a line in the rain waiting to see the film. That's when I knew. While the film was said to be a minor box office success, this too has remained a source of controversy for the film and its stars. I never got a chance to really tell the guys we never got any money. The guy who was the distribution company, he took all the money. And when I went to go get him and serve him, we went through a lot of legal stuff. He flew to Hawaii, took a bag full of money, and that was it. For the film, the players were paid $10,000 each and never received any residuals. But for Mercury Morris, this is a matter of perspective. You know what? Back then, you could get a new Corvette for 3700 bucks. So it's all relative. <laughs> I'm just happy to be part of that little notion of the black exploitation film. And that's what they called it back then. And when you think about it now, who wants to be exploited? And for director Matt Simber, it remains a fond memory.
Well, the best memory I have was the camaraderie among the guys. Even though they were opposite teams, they respected each other. They were just happy to be there. They never thought this film would become what it became. The impact it had on the industry and the impact it had on the following of football. One of the Black Six most enduring legacies is not that it was just the first film to include six NFL superstars at the height of their careers, but that it offered a precursor for the athlete as an influencer. The film was also a minor inspiration for a new generation of black filmmakers, adds RZA. When you look at a film like The Black Six, where it's like, well, let's grab these six football players, put them together, uh, let's maybe you know, look at the recent hit in theaters, you know, like Easy Rider or something. Let's, and let's make our version of it. And let's use the popularity of these athletes to sell this picture. But anyway, and I also think it still leaves something to think about now in the canon of filmmaking, which is you think of something like Space Jam, Michael Jordan and basketball players all popping up in that movie. So we can say that the Black Six is a pioneer of that. You'll see that even in the sports world, uh, there's an artist, there's a talent that can be brought into our world. You know, the, the Black Six, maybe one of the early attempts at it, didn't hit the home run, nor did they get the touchdown. But it definitely, I would say they definitely uh, moved the ball up a few yards. While the Black Six has achieved cult status in some circles for both cinephiles and fans of football, could Hollywood ever recreate that magic, or could there be a remake? The amount of stupid money that they get is so ridiculous. I don't think you could get guys to have the same type of attitudes towards uh, the race and relations and, and, and that type of thing, uh, ethnicities and all that stuff, because it's a different time now. Perhaps not. While the economics of both Hollywood and the NFL make a movie featuring several NFL superstars seem unlikely, fans of both film and football will always have the Black Six to turn to. But it can never stop both fans of the league and Hollywood from dreaming. I'm Richard Sherman. Thank you for listening. This has been an Audible Original, created by P.G. Kasheri. Produced by Audible Originals and Joy Road Entertainment. Neil Cabana, P.G. Kasheri, Matthew Hatchett, and Jim Young. Executive producer, Nick D'Angelo. The production was designed, engineered, and mixed by Neil Cabana. Acquisition and development, John Kim and Sonia Kim. Audible Legal Services, Whitney Marshall. Legal services provided by Pierce Law Group, David Albert Pierce, and Carter Courtney. Audible Head of U.S. Content, Rachel Giazza. Head of Audible Studios, Zola Mashariki. Joy Road Entertainment is P.G. Kusheri, Matthew Hatchett, Bobby Glenn-Smith, Tim Livingston, and Jim Young. Copyright 2022 by Joy Road Entertainment, LLC. Sound recording copyright 2022 by Audible Originals, LLC. Our special thanks go to Mercury Morris, Willie Lanier, and director Matt Simber 